Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm feeling a lot better. You know, I've been dragging this damn cough around here for about 10 days ever since I was in Minnesota a couple of weeks ago with your man, Bruce Pritchard. But I'm finally feeling like I'm on top of my game. I've got my tea. I've taken my Omax. I've got a blue chew in my back pocket. I'm ready to go. We're going to have fun tonight. Boy, I'm looking forward to this one. Now, let's tell you what we're doing today. We're covering the very last Monday Nitro, and this is going to be an interesting topic to say the least. Now, if you want to watch along with us, because that's what we're doing today, we're doing a watch along, I would encourage you to fire up the WWE Network. Cruise on over and find Nitro number 288. It's the very last one, March 26, 2001. And the reason I put this on the poll this week, Eric, is you revealed something to me once upon a time in passing. And it always stuck with me. You've never seen this show. No. And now that we've done the open and I'm, I, I, I got myself all excited. I realized what we're doing here tonight. And this is going to be a little weird. I, I have to admit earlier today, I went to the nitro book by Guy Evans that, that I've been talking about and we've been tweeting about a little bit. Right. Um, and I actually, to refresh my memory and kind of put myself back in that period of time, uh, I, you know, I read, I think it was the second to the last chapter and the last chapter that covered this particular time. And I actually found myself getting a little emotional about it because I wasn't there, you know, on location when it all went down. I wasn't anywhere near, you know, the offices and wasn't a part of the whole process of, of shutting it down in the, in the transition. And when I read it, um, in the book, it really brought it home to me um, because they talked about, you know, people like David Crockett and others who I was very close to. And, you know, listening to their points of view and what they went through was really, was really emotional for me. And I, I didn't think after all this time it would be, but it was. Without further ado, let's get into it and let's have you fire up WCW Monday Nitro episode number 288, the very last one. Eric's going to watch this with us for the very last time. And of course, I'm going to throw some news and notes in there, but I'm really just going to pick your brain about what you're seeing and maybe what the plans were, because this was a heartbreaking moment. I'm sure let's go ahead and press play on three. Here we go. Three, two, one play. So Eric, there's been lots of talk over the years about this new version of the logo where you guys had this redesign. Chat me up about the thinking process behind this new logo. The logo was, um, Jay has before, before you do though, look at this Vince McMahon opening uh, nitro. Does this just gut you right now? You know, it doesn't now because so much time has passed and I look at Vince differently now than I would have back then, obviously. Um, but I can imagine it's one of the reasons why I couldn't watch this when I knew this was going down, you know, I was gutted when our deal, when I say our deal, my deal with fusion media to purchase WCW, when that deal collapsed, I literally tried to distance myself as far as I could from wrestling, but you know, seeing it now it's, it's classic Vince McMahon. I would have done the same thing. Well, this is, uh, it's gotta feel a little bit like, um, I don't know. It's a little weird. Is it not? I mean, it's almost like seeing your wife, 
a picture with your of your wife with an ex boyfriend or something like doesn't matter doesn't affect your life now but party's got to be like oh it kind of sucks a little no no it does and i can only imagine and this is you know again when i was reading through you know the book earlier today trying to prepare for this and again kind of put myself back in this time frame so i could remember as much detail as possible while i was reading i was you know i was imagining i was able to kind of put myself in the shoes of everybody backstage and you know the employees in the turner offices and or wcw offices and it was just a i can only imagine how bizarro of a feeling it was what do you make of this opening here um you know it's a decent open it's fast paced it shows a lot of action it shows a lot of emotion unfortunately that completely just horrific logo was right you know square in it that was jay hasman he was our vp of marketing nick lambros hired him um i was encouraged to delegate authority because i had a tendency throughout 96 97 a lot of 98 the first part of 98 to kind of want to have my hands on everything and that was one of the critiques i got uh you know from guys like harvey schiller who were more corporately groomed than i was uh, so that was kind of Nick Lambros and Jay Hassman's work of art. And, uh, you know, I signed off on it, but I hated it. I, I don't know why we had to change it. I kind of liked the other one. We'll come back to that talk, but you just saw this huge display of pyro here. I mean, is that not a little bit like just lighting a match and torching some money on your last show here? Like you're sold, you're leaving, <laughs> you're shooting off tens of thousands of dollars of fireworks. I don't think anybody was too concerned about it at that point, to be honest with you. The yeah. deal was done. The budget was already set. Chances are we had already contracted for the pyro. Um, not saying that it couldn't have been canceled, but I don't think anybody was really, I don't think anybody gave a shit about this point. So this is uh, the end of an era here for sure. We see uh, Tony Schiavone here talking to Scott Hudson, trying to sort of tease and prepare us for what's coming, but nobody really knows what's coming. You know, there's been lots of talk, lots of rumor and innuendo over the years that had you been able to pull this deal off and you sort of be at the helm of WCW from an ownership standpoint, you had a different set of announcers in mind. The rumor and innuendo is that it was Joey Styles and Don Callis. What do you, what say you? Yeah, that was definitely going to be a part of the plan. And Tony Schiavone would have stayed on. You know, we I've always liked and respected Tony. There was no thoughts of, of firing Tony. But um, we did want – look, we knew that we need – look at Ric Flair coming out there. Just – wow. Um, we knew that we needed to hit the refresh button in every way possible. We needed to rebrand WCW and, and re- just get his – far away from what people had perceived WCW to, to be uh, as, far, as far as we could. And that included announcers. That, inclu- that would have included the look of the show, the location where we're going to produce the show. It would have included a lot of things, including a new announce team. And that was, yeah, it was going to be uh, Joey and uh, Don Callis. Why, why were those two the guys? I mean, obviously they had been doing ECW, but chat me up. Why here? You know, I like Joey. I, Joey and I had had a couple couple conversations. First of all, I liked him as an announcer. Um, he was a little over the top for me. Can you imagine what Wrigley, we're watching Ric Flair right now in the center of the ring. Now, I don't know what Rick knew. You know, obviously Rick was 
reasonably close to Vince McMahon. Uh, reasonably close to Vince McMahon at that time. So perhaps they smartened him up a little bit. Perhaps they had a conversation with him, you know, prior to the show. I don't know. But if not, can you imagine knowing how emotional of a, of a man Rick is? Can you imagine what he was going through this night? Wow. You know, it's fun because everybody has different perspectives. And I think at this point, you know, and this is of course years later. And right now he's cutting a hell of a promo saying that Vince McMahon thinks he holds the future of this company in his hand. He doesn't hold Jack Briscoe or Dory Funk or Harley race or sting or the Steiners or Ric Flair or Ricky steamboat or the road warriors, you know, so he's really trying to push that you can't kill this, but he would say, and even on our podcast together, that he was happy to see it, it gone. Like he had been frustrated and not happy for a while. And he was ready for it to be over. And I'm sure, you know, as somebody who was probably going to continue to get paid for a while, if you were really frustrated, that may have been the thinking, but on the one hand, considering how hot you were just a handful of years before, it's gotta be one of those. What if, you know, cause I think everybody sort of thought they could, as Kevin Nash would say, pull the nose up. And you certainly had hopes of doing that too. Had you been able to pull the fusion media deal off, what would Flair's role have been? He was clearly here tonight in a suit and he's going to wrestle in a shirt later. So he's not prepared for in-ring physicality. Would he have been sort of the, the Babe Ruth of the company or what would it have looked like for Ric Flair? Had you closed the deal? Well, Ric Flair would have definitely had a very high profile position um, within the new WCW or the fusion media version of, of WCW. We talked, you know, Brian Bedall and I, uh, Brian Bedall was one of the uh, two partners in fusion media. Uh, and they had had a, by the way, a little bit of background on fusion media because people know the name, but they really don't understand who they were. Brian Bedall and Steve Greenberg, um, were the two principal partners in fusion media. They had amassed a, a fortune by aggregating, um, college, uh, sports content that was just sitting in vaults for years and years and years. And nobody thought it had any value. Um, so they very, very brilliantly went around and just to, to all these different colleges and aggregated their sports libraries. And before you knew it, they had, you know, the classic sports channel, which eventually became ESPN classic sports. Uh, they sold out to ESPN and made tens of millions of dollars in the process. And they turned around and they did a, a similar thing with CBS and Viacom uh, with sports footage. So Brian Bedall and Steve Greenberg were two very, very successful, very smart media executives. And they had a lot of resources, not only their own resources, but they had excellent relationships on Wall Street, which is what allowed us to raise, you know, $67 million. So they were really bright guys. And we did talk about Rick. We talked about Hulk Hogan. We talked about, you know, Bill Goldberg. We talked about Sting. We talked a lot of, about a lot of the guys that we knew we were going to keep, but had to be repositioned in one way, shape or form. Well, of course, what we're going to see in a little bit is we're going to see on the last nitro, what we saw on the first nitro, which is pretty poetic sting and Ric Flair. You know, you never wanted 
this to end, but if you were here and you were booking it and you knew it was going to end, could you think of a better way than to have bookends for nitro with flair and sting? It was the first clash of the champions. It was the first nitro. It should be the last nitro, right? No, I, I absolutely. And I read in the nitro book earlier today that, um, you know, the, the WWE team came in on Sunday. Uh, they had, you know, asked for formats and scripts and everything. Uh, previously they came in on Sunday, um, worked on them. And then on Monday handed over all a completely rewritten show, which by the way, makes me believe that Rick had been smartened up here. I, to the, to the extent that I'm sure Vince or somebody pulled him aside and said, um, Hey, Rick, just shoot, you know, just shoot because otherwise I, I doubt, I doubt very much Rick would have come on this strong because he's intense here unless he knew that, uh, he was in a pretty good position. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he's, um, he's always had a good relationship with Vince. So I don't think it was something where he was worried about having a job. You know, one of the things that a lot of times is, is reported inaccurately is that this last show was at club La Vila. It's not, uh, it is outdoors. It is in Panama city. It is on the beach, but it's not club La Vila, but we've gotten lots of questions about that since we've started doing this show about how the fucking club La Vila thing came to be. And I know you weren't there to put this one together, but you did put together the La Vila shows. Chat me up about why La Vila was the right spot. Uh, it was just the easiest spot to shoot that was on the beach that got a good crowd. You know, there's a lot of bars, you know, down in Panama city. Um, but a lot of them are really, really small. And they don't have the kind of outside area in the view uh, that that Club La Villa did. You know, it, it not only was close to the ocean, obviously, it, you had easy access. There was plenty of parking. There was a way to get our production trucks, you know, close to the venue where we were going to be shooting. It just had all the ingredients necessary for a live television production, uh, where very, very few other locations in Panama City did. What an interesting shot here. There's not a huge crowd, not a big to do. We do have a title match tonight though. Booker T and Scott Steiner. I'm sure we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. The, um, the logo. Oh, here we go. Here's uh, something we've talked about recently. A slim Jim commercial. Love those slim Jims. I used to eat them actually till I read what was in them. <laughs> Well, that being said, if Slim Jim is looking to sponsor us, then, then we would love to take a long, hard look at snapping into it. It's fun. I'll, to be, see. I'll be chowing down on that stuff. How about America online as a sponsor? That feels like a, a long time ago, but interestingly enough, Bruce Pritchard is the last man on earth with an AOL email address, still rocking it all these years later. That's a horrible shot. Look at that shot. That's a horrible shot. It is. There's nobody there. You're There's angry. nobody there. Yeah. My God, it looks like a flea market in the middle of nowhere. But what a production for nobody there. The big lights, the, I mean, there's a fucking helicopter shot. Freestyle, I guess, 17 years ago. What did this helicopter shot cost? Cause oh, these 20 days, grand. 20, 20 grand. grand. See these days it'd be a fucking drone for 600 bucks and you're good to go. Yeah. You could buy the drone at, you know, best, best buy. buy. Yeah. But that, that 20 grand would have, would have covered, um, the two hours you would, you would have got multiple shots out of that. So here you go. The big, bad booty daddy, Scott Steiner coming into the very last nitro. Of course, 
Uh, he was a big part of WCW for a long time. And obviously for the entire run of nitro and really he had come into his own here. He's the world champion and he's got uh, the big gold belt around his waist. And there's Medasia. What'd you think of this version of big Papa pump compared to the version that you first inherited? I dug it. You know, it was different. Um, he, he was really coming into his own on the mic. I mean, he's never, he's never been a great interview, but he, he got so bad. He was great. He was fun to listen to. Um, but the look was phenomenal. I mean, he just, you know, he looked like something out of a, uh, out of a freaky feature film. Chat me up here. Um, what would the plans have been with fusion? Did you have an idea for a Booker T or a Scott Steiner? You know, we didn't really, we didn't focus a lot on future creative. We did talk about what talent we wanted to keep, what talent we didn't feel we could keep, uh, or want to keep, but there was so much work to do on rebranding, repositioning, um, the company that creative was really the last thing that we needed to think about, you know, the intention, <coughs> excuse me, the intention, I hope we can edit that by the way, it sounds horrible. The intention really, when we acquired, when we were going to acquire the company was to shut it down for a period of three to six months. Uh, the thinking being that absence makes a heart grow fonder and we had to build some anticipation and we had to make people, you know, anxious to see what the new rebranded, um, WCW was going to look like, or nitro was going to look like. And you couldn't do that simply by taking it off the air for two weeks and coming back. You had to be gone a long enough period of time to really build up anticipation and to market it properly. So we were focused more on things like, you know, where do we want to produce the show? How can we reduce the cost of producing the show? Um, what talent, you know, could we afford? And in that budget, who did we want to keep? Um, rebuilding relationships with sponsors and things like that. That's really where our focus was, not on what are we going to do with Booker T. No, I get that. Just I wanted to make sure that, you know, I mean, it feels natural that you would have had a conversation about, Hey, we'd like to make our, you know, our core superstars, the guys we want to really feature, you know, these handful of guys, but both of these guys would have been figured in, uh, assuming, oh, you yeah. get the no, money no. Right. And like I said earlier, and I didn't go through the entire list, but certainly Booker T Scott Steiner, um, sting Hulk Hogan, Bill Goldberg, um, Lex, I'm sure. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll cover some more names. Let me ask you here though. One of the things that comes out was that. Your plan was to move the company to LA and Las Vegas and do weekly tapings at the hard rock cafe who was building an arena at the time and to go dark for a bit, no shows in April whatsoever. This is all directly from the dirt sheets. And you were going to call this the big bang when you returned on the very first pay-per-view on May 6th and variety was even reporting that you were trying to put together deals with the WWE to have some like cross promotional pay-per-views and some of the boys in the locker room uh, on all these reports, because there's so much going on, start to get a little nervous about what's really happening, what's real and what's not. And the rumor mill gets swirling that you guys were making calls to some of the big money players, like the names that you listed 
Steiners, Kevin Nash, Sting, Goldberg, Flair, DDP, Luger, Booker T, etc. And you were asking them to take a pay cut of 50% to sort of. That's not true. That's, that's not true. Okay. That's not true. That is not true. I had probably, oh, I, I remember going down, uh, and I remember this because it was such a bizarre, it was a bizarre evening, but I remember going down to Orlando and meeting with Scott and Kevin, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, and just kind of getting a feel for where their heads were at and trying to decide for myself you know, what I wanted to do or how I wanted to move forward with, with both of those guys. And I just, you know, I needed to reconnect with them. I really needed to get a read on where their heads were at. Right. Um, but we didn't talk money. We didn't talk money. Uh, and, and I remember the night, and this is kind of a side, side story, but it was it left a, a big impression on me. Uh, we actually went, you know, Scott was pretty emotional that night. And he actually took me over to the club that he used to work at when he was a bouncer and, um, actually walked me through, I think it was kind of a cathartic thing for him. It was really bizarre, but he kind of walked me through the night that, you know, he, as a bouncer, he got into a, an altercation with somebody who pulled a gun on him and he he got the gun away from the guy and shot him. And I mean, literally, you know, this is where we were standing kind of thing. And it was a very animated, very emotional, um, evening. And I, I just, wow. I mean, that's how I remember that I was in Orlando talking to Scott and Kevin around this time. But other than that, you know, I had had some conversations with Hulk, obviously, um, probably DDP just because of my relationship with him. But beyond that, I didn't really have a lot of conversations with talent because we weren't internally sure what we wanted to do at that point. It's not like we, you got to remember when, When we made the the offer um, to to acquire WCW, you know that was a back and forth process. We entered into a a, a letter agreement, if you will, a letter of intent. It was non binding, obviously, but we went we entered into that agreement, and then we went through about three months or four months worth of due diligence, which, by the way, cost Fusion Media about nine hundred thousand dollars in lawyers' fees by the time they were done. So all of that took a period of about two or three months. And during that period of two or three months, as I said, we were starting to kind of think about how we were going to fix this and, you know, what our budgets needed to be and all that kind of thing while we were negotiating. I wasn't ready to start talking talent deals with people yet. So whatever was reported or in the dirt sheets or the rumor and innuendo, wherever it was written, um, when it came to discussing money with talent, that's, that just wasn't true. We'll come back with the, with the exception of a couple cases. We'll come back to that in a minute. Booker T has just been crowned world champion. He beats big Papa pump. And now he is both the United States champion and the world champion. Is there a better guy to wrap it up with than Booker T? I don't think so. I mean, Booker T was just getting better and better and better. And we saw him con- continue to evolve, you know, in, in WWE, um, Booker he had all the tools. Still does. He could probably still he could probably still perform, you know, at a pretty high level today. He's just he's he had it all. Real question. You know, this for whatever reason doesn't get talked about very often, but is Booker T the greatest black wrestler ever? 
Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. You know, I, I, I don't know. You know, it's such a subjective question. You know, I would say Ron Simmons would be. Well, I mean, I think Ron Simmons is probably the most important because he was the first, but I mean, Booker T, he did so much as, as a top guy. I mean, I guess if you count the rock and this is a weird conversation for a white guy from Alabama to have, but I just don't think that. I think so much focus goes to Ron Simmons. No disrespect to Ron. Huge fan of Ron. Loved Doom as a kid with the mask that was awesome. And I was so excited when he beat Vader. It was a cool deal. But I felt like Booker T took it to another level. And I just know. I, I don't feel like Booker T always gets his just due in that conversation. I feel like when they talk about Black World Champions, everybody goes Ron Simmons and then they just kind of quit talking. Booker T should no, be but, on the but, but this is where this is why I don't want to say I get frustrated, but it's so easy to make subjective, you know, claims like that now in, in the most recent years. Yeah. Booker T is, you know, of all the, you know, black wrestlers out there, African-American wrestlers out there, clearly Booker T is at the top of the list, but it's a different time. You know, if you go back, you know, one of the reasons I say Ron Simmons is because Ron Simmons brought so much credibility. Yes. You know, not just that he was the first, and that's the reason why I, when I say Ron Simmons, it's not because he was, you know, the first black, you know, African-American world champion. Uh, and, and there were others, by the way, before Ron, different organizations. But um, to me, Ron Simmons is one of the most important because he brought so much credibility to, 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 to that role and to the business in general. That's why I would say Ron Simmons, but that's subjective based on how I value someone's impact. If you ask me, you know, between Ron Simmons and Booker T, who is the most entertaining? Hands down, Booker T. No question about it. So we come back from commercial 
and we see another Vince McMahon vignette. And now check out who's in the ring here, Eric. This is a little new school. How about Dave Penzer? Got his Hawaiian shirt on like he likes it. And Charles Robinson, best hair in the business. Second best hair in the business. <laughs> I was waiting on you to say that. Don't, don't go getting crazy. Three count. Chat me up here. Um, who's that? Jimmy this? Hart loved three count. That was Jimmy Hart. By the way, I know we haven't talked about it, but I saw Jimmy Hart. I spent some time with him this past weekend. He was at a convention here in Huntsville. I can't believe we had a wrestling convention, but we did. And they brought in Jimmy Hart and no matter what they did, like a Q and a segment. And no matter what the question was, when it came time for him to answer, it always came back to Jimmy Hart's famous bar and Tiki deck right there in Daytona beach, baby. Oh my God. He is the, I mean, he is, first of all, he's 70 some odd years old. And, and, and I still, I was talking to Hulk about an hour ago and we were talking about, you know, Jim Neidhart passing and, you know, all the people who are his peers and I guess my peers to a degree, you know, passing away. And, it, you know, it was, it was emotional for him. And he said, God, you know, all the people I used to hang with are, they're all passing away because all I got left is, you know, you and Jimmy Hart. <laughs> and he said, Jimmy Hart's like 75 years old. And you wouldn't know that being around him. No, you would not a, know that. He's such a vibrant, you know, active, you know, young at heart guy. But guaranteed, he is he is an old school Memphis pitch man. And he will always be pitching whatever he's got his fingers in. Tony Schiavone absolutely hates Evan Courageous. To this day, he calls him nothing happening, Evan Courageous. You got any good Evan Courageous stories you can share with us? Yeah, he and Medusa got along really well. Oh, roll tide. How about Rey Mysterio with the horns? He's unmasked here. That's got to make you proud, right? Absolutely. I mean, See, saw the light. He finally, <laughs> he finally saw the light. Such oh. a good looking young man. He just was much better without the mask. Uh. By the way, Shannon, Moore, I know, I know I, that I was saying that in jest. I was just trying to get some heat on myself. No, I appreciate that. But Tony Schiavone says, fuck the mask. He's being legitimate. And I'm like, that mask was a money-making opportunity. He's like, yeah, it, but he's it, so it should have been a money-making opportunity. The fact was it wasn't in WCW because WCW didn't have the infrastructure, the means, the ways to make it a moneymaker. It should have been. But the fact is it wasn't. By the way, with all these top rope maneuvers, all these high spots, I know a lot of guys complain about the business today. Old schoolers who say that, you know, it's too much high spots. There's not enough psychology, Well, here we are all these years, all these years ago, this is one spot after another, but it's fun to me. I love it. You know, the business changes. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about this the other day I was driving and, and again, you know, I, I guess because I'm getting a little older and I'm thinking about all the things that I've watched and listened to and been a part of. <coughs> and when I got into the business back in 1987 and working for Vern, one of the things that he used to complain about all the time was these young kids and they don't know how to sell, you know, and back, you know. You know, he, he always hearkened back to, you know, his heyday, which was really in the 60s, in the 70s. You know, Vern was always trying to recreate that style that was more prevalent uh, in the 60s and the 70s than it was in the late 80s. You know, in the 90s, when I was in WCW, you know, as a third string or fourth string announcer, all I ever heard 
was, you know, the older guys, you know, whether it was Dusty Rhodes or whoever, you know, the more experienced talent. Uh, Ole Anderson was, I mean, he was like the classic. He just always buried the young, and the young guys being, by the way, guys like Sting and a number of other guys that we look up to now as, you know, great wrestlers, you know, always, you know, knocking the, the younger guys. Bill Watts, same thing. Fucking horrible. They were always going, wanting to go back to that period of time that was the, the heyday of their respective careers. And I hear the same thing now. And one of the things that I'm really, really aware of is that the business changes. Comedy changes. Music changes. Films change. Televisions change. Everything changes. And, you know, you just need to learn to appreciate it differently. There's still some things I miss. Like in this match right now, you got to cover and... You know, it's kind of a cluster, and I don't like cluster finishes. But, you, you know, you've you've got to learn to appreciate the athleticism, the characters, and evolve with the business because nothing is ever going to go back the way it used to be. Just like sitcoms, you know, they're not going to go back to the way they used to produce the Dick Van Dyke show. That's just never going to happen. So you either learn to appreciate, you know, new content or life passes you by. By the way, I guess we should mention um... – the crowd was hot for that. So even if it wasn't really your deal, it was over. It was working. And we see right Well, you know, but not to interrupt you, Conrad, but the reason why is because this wasn't a wrestling audience. This is a bunch of drunk kids on the beach. It's a little bit like going to Sturgis. You know, they're going to react to what's easy for them to, to relate to. Since they don't know the stories, and in many cases, they didn't know the characters, in a situation like this, what are they going to react to? They're going to react to the action and the intensity and the high-flying stuff. Oh, my gosh. This wouldn't happen today, would it? No. Trish Stratus and her chest, on, in a lot of her chest, sitting on the couch with Vince McMahon, who is clearly wanting to make a move. Well, I'll tell you this. It's, it's a shame that back. Oh my God. He made the move. Oh my God. Vince, you need a blue chew, brother. That's what I was going to say. You know, things are getting a little older. Things are wearing down, man. Dave Penzer probably needed a handful of blue chew when he was wearing that shirt right there. I don't think Dave Penzer's ever been laid. Has he really ever? I don't know. I can't imagine it. I don't want to imagine it, but if I had to bet, I'd bet no. Wow. Dave Penzer, by the way, these days, I don't know that you know this. You might is a realtor. I didn't know that. I did his podcast a couple of weeks ago. I know that we, uh, we actually just did uh, a deal together. One of, uh, one of our listeners bought a house using first family mortgage roll tide and they bought a house from Dave Penzer. Wow. Well, congratulations, Dave. Good match here, by the way. Shane Helms and Chavo Guerrero. This really is a good match. Shane, Shane, um, Shane was at the top of his game here. This is before he got too big. Shane, I love you like a brother, but you got too big. Yeah, Slow down. Shane here is like uh, ready for a fitness competition. Lean and mean, no, man. He's, he's about a buck 75, a buck 80 with rocks in his pockets, but he could move. He could move. He looks like a superhero today, though. He's going to be at Starcast, by the way. There's no telling what shenanigans you two are going to get into. I can't wait to see him. He's fun to mess with. Now, what a fucking finishing maneuver that was. All the that Omega, was amazing. All the Omega 3s in the world are not going to help Chavo Guerrero right there. He might be dead. 
I, I hope they show that on replay here. It's the vertebraker. Of course, they're not going to. Uh, no, it, no, that that no. I was hoping that was it. It's not. That was an amazing finishing move right there. Those guys did a fantastic job. If you haven't seen a vertebraker from Shane Helms before, go out of your way to do it. Just watching it will make you want to go to the chiropractor. So here we go. The night of the champions continues here on nitro and man, it's sad to think about this as it, you know, what could have been, well, it's not so much what could have been. That doesn't, I I don't dwell on that kind of stuff. You know, I have said this before many times. I don't live in the past. I try not to, uh, obviously doing things like this. I'm, I'm kind of forced into it once a week at least, but you know, I, what I'm, I guess, dwelling on is trying to imagine what, what everybody felt like. And, you know, we're obviously, we're looking at talent. They're wondering, you know, what's going to happen to them, their, their futures, their families. A lot of these guys are making big money, which means they got big mortgages. They got big car payments. Um, and it could all go away. You know, they don't know at this point, but the production people, you know, the, the staff, everybody there, there's probably no fewer than 75 production people there. And every one of them are probably wondering, you know, what are they going to be doing for a job? No doubt. And here's a couple of guys who are going to be just fine. They're going to wind up in the WWF before you know it. Mike awesome, uh, mulletless. And uh, if I can be serious for a minute, Mr. Lance storm. I gotta tell you, he, I, is ser- he is serious, isn't he? But you know that Vince Russo wanted to, when when, you know, Vince and I started, you know, we agreed to work together, or I agreed to work with Vince, I should say. Um, that was one of Vince's big ideas: is he wanted me to be, uh, he wanted Lance to be my son. Well, why not? Means I would have had to, I, I would have had to conceive him when I was like nine. Oh, that's details. Listen, there wasn't yeah, yeah, a little, who gives a fuck about details, right? <laughs> I mean, he threw it doesn't the giant to be believable. It doesn't he, have to mean it doesn't have to be believable. It just has to be funny. He threw the giant off a building and then he came back to life and won the world title an hour later. Yeah. That was pretty fucked up. Good call on that. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, it's like, eh. fuck it. Okay. He's not, yeah, but that was Halloween. Come on. I got a pass for Halloween. Didn't I? Okay. No. You buried Ric Flair in the desert. Oh, look at this. Let's get off that. Come here, on. Here comes blue chew. Here we go. Mike. Is that Michael Cole? Yes. He looks like a dweeb there with the blonde tips. How, how come you know? Oh, that was so tips? cute. The blonde tips are so cute. Michael. You're so fashionable. Tucking his Jersey in. Did you used to tuck your t-shirt? Wait, can't talk about that here. Yeah, please do not. <laughs> post-traumatic <laughs> disorder just for a minute you started to twitch a little it was funny oh no so chat chat me up big bang may 6 was that the original plan was that kicked around i don't think we had really firmed up the date i think that kind of got out everybody jumped on it that was penciled in but it wasn't a firm date right What do you make of uh, Scott Hudson as an announcer? We haven't talked about him a lot here on the show. 
I like Scott. You know, I, I hired Scott. Uh, Scott was a, uh, I can't remember who he wrote for. He was a writer, a dirt sheet writer. Um, but he's always down, he was down the middle. You know, he didn't editorialize a lot and he tried to get, you know, confirmation of things and back his stuff up. Uh, and I always liked him. I'd see him down at center stage all the time when we were producing shows down there. And I, you know, I'd always go over and say hello to him. And he was always a, he was a respectful guy and, and worked really hard at it. And I, I just liked him and I hired him uh, originally. I, I liked his play by play. I think he lacked a little emotion. Um, he was a good play by play guy, but he just lacked a little bit of, of emotion. It's the only thing he was missing. And that comes with experience and comfort. You know, you, nobody, nobody starts out, you know, feeling a hundred percent comfortable in that role. Let me just tell you, uh, I was not a big Palumbo guy. I don't know why, but I thought Sean O'Hare could have been one of the big stars just based on look and size. I was a huge Mike awesome Mark in ECW. And I still feel like Lance storm is one of those criminally underrated in-ring performers, almost like a more modern day Bobby Eaton. Like he could just have a good match with anybody. He was always in the right place at the right time. And there's so many little things he did that made a lot of sense. What was your take on those three guys and maybe what their upside could have been? Well, I think, um, we'll start out with Sean here. I agree with you hundred percent. Great look, um, believable, um, a pretty good, uh, worker in the ring. I just don't think he had the depth of character. And again, all of this, I mean, it's not a criticism. It's just a realization that he didn't have a lot of experience. He was pretty green. Right. I think with a couple years under his belt, he could have been one of the top guys uh, in the business had he been surrounded with a lot of really good quality people that, that taught him how to work and produced him in a way that we could see and kind of grow with his character. Uh, Palumbo, I, I feel a little differently than you do. I think Chuck was probably closer than anybody else in the ring <laughs> in terms of being able to transition to that top guy status. He had a great personality. He was good on the mic, or he had the capability of being good on the mic if he was given reasonable material. Uh, see, that's if you're watching uh, Sean there, he's just he, he's he's doing everything too fast. You know, he's not quite letting anything register. And I know that's a common criticism, but for a big guy who's as powerful as he is, he's working more like a Ray Mysterio or Shane Helms or Chavo Guerrero than he is like a big powerful guy. With Lance. I agree with you a hundred percent on his technical ability in the ring. Just nobody was ever really able to capture the character that, that combined with his physical skills and his technical skills to really make it click. He lacked emotion. Um, you didn't really get a feel for who he was. We need to uh, give everybody a heads up here. The reason the audio is going silent for a second or two here or there, Eric is uh, very, very sick. And so what you're hearing is silence where a cough would have been. We're taking care of those, but we can't just completely edit them out because we're doing a watch along. So when the audio drops out, there's nothing wrong. We just don't want Eric coughing in your ear. One or two may slip, but Eric is powering through. And boy, Mike Awesome could not power through that Centon bomb. A guy the size 
of Sean O'Hare getting on the top rope and doing a senton as if he were Jeff Hardy, man, that's something else. He was very, very athletic, very athletic. Sad story about, about Sean too. I, I don't remember how he passed, but like too many others passed way too soon. So what we've got next, and this is a little silly, uh, is we're setting up a, a match here where somebody's getting a tattoo and it's either going to be meat or the future meat, Sean Stasiak, or it's going to be bam, bam, Bigelow. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. My goodness gracious. How roll tied was Stacy Keebler? I am telling you to this day, one of the hottest women ever to step inside of a wrestling ring. Definitely. And not only the hottest, she's the coolest. Can you imagine David Flair? I mean, what the hell? I never, no offense, David, if you hear this. I never understood it. And look, I know I've overachieved. I really have. And by the way, so have you, (laughs) but David flair, David flair defined overachievement. (laughs) When you look up, when you Google overachiever, I guarantee the first thing that's going to come up is a picture of David flair. Well, and right beside him is Billy Kidman. Am I right? Oh my God. What? Yes. And for that matter, and for that matter, diamond Dallas page, like if I was going to go start a sales force with three wrestlers, let me tell you who I'm picking in order. David flair, Billy Kidman and DDP, because those guys are the three greatest salesmen. Okay. You're number four in the history of wrestling. I mean, you can just look at exhibit a, right? Absolutely. It's kind of like Scott Hall tweets often. If you follow him on Twitter, Chicks dig wrestlers. I guess so. God, she's hot. You know what? I, I talked her out of doing Playboy. Did you know that? I fucking Stacey hate Keebler? you. I'm canceling the show. This is our last episode. <laughs> I'm done with you. I know. I'm kind of hot at myself at this point. <laughs> Why? She came to me when I was in WWE, and she asked me. She goes, I've got an opportunity to do Playboy. Do you think I should do it? I said, well, what would your mom and dad say? Oh, fuck this. No, well, because that's important. You know, it's easy to get excited about doing something like that in a moment, but then you got to go home. And she said, my, my, my dad, you know, he, he's a blue collar worker. I can't remember what she said he did, but she said he'd be, you know, he'd be devastated because all the guys at work would, would, you know, be relentless. I said, well, is, is that worth it to you? She said, no. So, okay. Let me know what you decide. <laughs> I'll be curious. So I can buy a copy if you think I'm an idiot. <laughs> Sorry, man. I, I, don't, I don't even. I'm blocking you in my phone. We're not, <laughs> this is, I'm kind of hot at myself, to be honest with you. This is a mess. This is a mess of a match right here. I mean, it's so. It's it's. I mean, first of all, Bam Bam Bigelow, who's wrestling in a t-shirt here, 
brought out a tattoo kit. Like it's so stupid. Oh. It's just, and look how empty the, the, the stands are back there. It's almost like it's a TNA house show from 2014. It looks like a TNA TV show. This is horrible. By the way, um, have you, I don't know why we're pivoting here, but me and you've never talked about it. Have you seen the new uh, studio where they're shooting impact TV now? I have not, dude. It is badass. You got, really? you, you would love it. The presentation, like, I don't know what room they're shooting it in. I know it's somewhere in Canada, dude. It's awesome. You would love it. It's right up your alley. I'm not, I'm not, they're not paying for an ad. I'm not putting it over for money. I'm just saying, I saw it the other day and I was like, holy cow, look at this. I haven't watched that show. Or I, I haven't watched TNA in, or any very version of it in three years. So maybe I'll go back and I'll go take a look at it. Yeah, you should check it out. So there you go. John Stasiak gets the win. It only takes a minute and 23 seconds. So we're rapid firing uh, the matches here, rolling them out one after another. And I think a lot of people sort of lose sight of this. This is the go home raw that we're tuning into here. For WrestleMania 17, the biggest ever. This is six days before the biggest WrestleMania ever at the uh, Astrodome in Houston. And he managed to be on not just one of the wrestling shows, but both. Really, maybe one of the greatest tricks McMahon ever pulled, right? Yeah, he's got to be proud of himself. And again, reading through the book this afternoon, and I was thinking, God, what, a, what an ass. But then I'm you know, was honest with myself and I said, well, what would, I, what would I have done? And believe me, I would have been probably as big or even bigger of an ass. DDP here talking like it's the end. What a long, strange trip it's been. And he's loved every second of it. What was, what was it like for him here? Did he think there was still going to be an opportunity for him to do something with the WWF or you were buddies with him? What were your conversations like with him in this? I, you know, I, I didn't talk to him a lot during this time. Um, but DDP was, you know, he's always, we know of him now as being, you know, Mr. Positive, but he's always been that way, you know, from the time that I knew him, um, he believes in himself. He believed in himself back then. And I'm sure like a lot of guys, he wasn't exactly sure financially where he was going to end up. But I think for him, uh, it was just another opportunity, another, another opportunity to prove himself. He, he would not have let himself get negative. I know that for a fact. Talk to me a little bit about, um, the way you were able to raise the money here for fusion media. I know you've talked about a little bit in your book, but I know we mentioned, uh, Brian and Steve and that they had sold the ESPN classic sports network or the classic sports network to ESPN for a boatload of cash. But you use them, and is there a team of others, or is that really your primary funding source to raise the capital here? Well, again, these guys were very, very sophisticated um, investment bankers. They weren't just you know media guys; they were investment bankers, and and very well connected on Wall Street. So what they did is they they put they put up five million dollars of their own money. That was the initial investment, and then. Um, they went about raising the other $62 million. And I was actually a part of that process. I actually did, I think, three days of, uh, uh, they call them dog and pony shows. Right, right. Where you go in and you present your you know, investment opportunity to you know, blue chip investment firms. We went to you know, Warbrook Pincus. We went to a number of 
really big investment houses. And these were all people that they had relationships with. And we pitched our, we pitched the vision, we pitched the business plan uh, in order to raise the additional $62 million. And we're successful in doing that. There's um, a story here that you were trying to work some sort of deal where you got Rupert Murdoch or Fox or FX or somebody involved because everybody knew that Ted and Rupert, you know, had some sort of feud between them. What was the strategy there? Can you clear up any rumor and innuendo about how they may have been some wisdom in that? No, I mean, it was true. Um, I had, because I had relationships with certain people in Los Angeles, um, I had been speaking to a gentleman by the name of Kevin Riley, who I think he was one of the heads of FX and a guy by the name of Peter Liguri, uh, both of whom were interested in WCW and the original meetings I had with them when, when it looked like we were going to acquire WCW was to, uh, have one of the shows on Turner Nitro on TNT and move the Thunder Show over to FX. And we got we got quite a ways down uh, the line on that. Uh, but they were coming in as an investment deal. It was strictly going to be a licensing deal and a distribution deal for one of our shows. So chat me up here about what we're seeing. <laughs> uh, Romeo is in the ring. Uh, I don't remember much about... I mean, you know, I know I've seen this a few times, but every time I ask myself, who the fuck is kid Romeo? Like I remember Ray Mysterio, Billy Kidman and Neely Skipper, like it was yesterday, but for some reason there's a mental block with old kid Romeo. Yeah. I'm going to have to get a good look at him because quite honestly, I don't have much, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't have much memory of him either. Must not have uh, left a big impression on anybody. These guys are going to go four minutes and 43 seconds. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, when that all comes together, it was written that you knew that by the end of August 98, that this whole time Warner situation didn't want WCW to survive and budgets are being changed that have been approved forever. You finally leave fall of 99. You come back in the spring of 2000. It's fucked. It doesn't take long before allegedly you pitch Siegel on just selling it to you. And by the end of 2000, he agrees to let you start working. So that's when you get busy, the end of 2000 working on raising money and all that. And there is some talk about a 10 year contract for programming for TBS as part of the deal. How do you remember that coming up? Well, you covered a lot of ground there, and I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. I didn't start talking to Siegel about selling WCW until Russo and I, until it was clear to me that Russo and I weren't going to work together, and 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 Brad sent me home again <laughs> after bringing me back and sent me home again, and that's when I just went, I, the, this this place is more screwed up now than it's ever been, and there's nobody that's going to fix it, nobody. They could have brought Steven Spielberg in, or they could have cloned Vince McMahon and brought him in to work inside of that environment and have to work within the AOL Time Warner Turner kind of environment. There's nobody that was going to fix it, and it became more apparent to me. So that's when I went to Brad and said, Brad, you're never going to fix this thing. No one's going to. Why don't you let me try to buy it? 
And that's the first time I mentioned that he just laughed at me. Right. Said, <laughs> right, Eric. Thanks. You know, <laughs> we'll get back to you on that. And that was it. I mean, he literally laughed me off the phone and I had a good relationship with, with Brad, but still it was, it was a very short conversation. And about a month and a half later, he called me and said, so Eric, about a month and a half ago, you offered to, 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 to maybe uh, try to find some investors and buy this thing. I said, yeah, Brad, I did. He goes, do you think you might still be interested in doing that? I said, sure, Brad, I am. Let me get back to you this time. And that's when I, you know, called Brian and Steve and let them know that all of a sudden there was interest. And as far as the 10-year thing, that was true. You know, one of the, the terms to the, the deal uh, that we had with Turner uh, was to have distribution for both uh, Nitro and Thunder for a period of 10 years on TNT and TBS respectively. That's where the value in the deal was. Without that television distribution, there was no value to the deal. So you guys do a conference call January 11th, uh, you and Siegel. It's like 45 minutes or so. You announce the deal and Siegel says that Turner never planned to sell, but offers were pouring in, including one from the WWF and the very same day that the AOL Time Warner merger is officially going down is when this is all happening. And one of the new demands, according to the legend, when you guys are going back and forth, is that the Time Warner side wants a 12.5% stake in the company for profit sharing, but no financial obligation should the company incur losses. Do you remember seeing that? Because that seems like the most lopsided shit ever. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember seeing that as part of the deal, but that I didn't, I didn't structure the deal. That would have been Brian and Steve and probably, you know, some attorneys on their side of the equation. Um, I, I wasn't a part of that. The whole Las Vegas, Los Angeles, we're going to do weekly tapings, hard rock cafe. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that was true. Uh, we were going to move to, uh, Los Angeles for a variety of reasons. We wanted, we were negotiating with, um, Hard Rock, uh, they wanted to build a venue specifically for us, but it would have been, you know, multi-use. They would have used it for other things. About a 5,000-seat, 7,000-seat arena um, on top of one of their parking decks, and that would have been our permanent home. We wouldn't have taped every week. We would have taped every two weeks. Uh, but, yeah, we were going to move the offices to Los Angeles with our production base in Las Vegas. When, uh, you know, the, the rumor in innuendo is that you get the call two days before the March pay-per-view greed, uh, and Jamie Kellner says that, uh, they want to focus on comedy and sports to make TNT more high end. So nitro and thunder were canceled effectively at the end of the month. The legend is that when you get this call, you're actually on vacation. Yeah. I mean, that's true. Um, <clears throat> I knew, <clears throat> excuse me. I knew that once if the deal had closed and, and, and you know in march i fully expected it was going to close like i said we were you know 98% of the way through our due diligence you know we were scheduled to close our documents everything was in place the money was in place we had made the announcement to wall street as you pointed out i mean this thing was a full go um i knew that once my feet hit the ground uh, once the deal closed, and it would probably be years before I had the opportunity to take any time away from it. Um, 
So I, I did have a little bit of time. There was nothing I could really work on at that point. So I took my uh, my wife and my kids and a couple of kids' friends to Hawaii for about, I don't know, five or six days. <coughs> We uh, had a great we had a great time. Renewed our vows while we were there. Uh, Masa Saido and his wife uh, Michi from New Japan Pro Wrestling came over and were part of the wedding. And you know it was an absolutely wonderful period. And I was gearing up mentally and emotionally to, you know, to hit the ground running and probably not see another vacation for three years. Um, and I was literally sitting on the beach with my kids when uh, I got the call. And basically, it was Brian Bedall saying, Eric, the deal's done. I said, great, Brian. <laughs> I want to go up to the bar and grab a Mai Tai. Congratulations. He said, no, Eric, you don't get it. The deal's done. I said, no, I understand. The deal's done. I'm going to go get a Mai Tai. <laughs> Congratulations. Mazel tov. And uh, then he made it clear to me that the deal was over. And at that point, I just, you know, my heart just sunk. I mean, I was numb. <laughs> I didn't get emotional. I just got numb. It's the only way to say it. You know, at this point, this has been your baby. You know, you sort of dug this thing out of a hole, built it into this big thing, and you've seen it sort of crumble. But now you feel like you've got new life and a new opportunity, and maybe some of the the chains have been removed that Turner had had put on you. It had to feel like a weight off your shoulders and a second chance. And then in a phone call, you're in paradise with your family. It all comes crashing down at that moment, you know, not to be, I mean, I think a lot of wrestling fans just think about just what we see on TV and wrestling and all that, but you had to be thinking, I mean, what the fuck do I do now? Right. You know, I, no, I, I, I mean, it would seem like I would, would be, but uh, financially, I, you know, no, I don't mean financially, just like you sort of had in your mind's eye, not like, Hey, how am I going to pay the utility bill? But I sort of felt like in my mind, this is going to be my life's purpose and mission for the next, as you said, several years. And now in a phone call, nope. Yeah. I, I you know, that the thoughts like that started to develop in me about a month later for the first two or three weeks, honestly, you know, I mean, I was there with my wife and my kids, right? Um, I didn't want to be, I, I wanted to, you don't want to be a them. downer. Yeah. Right. I wanted to, cause I, you know, I didn't want my kids to, you know, worry. I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a downer as you pointed out. So I kept, you know, to, as far as my wife and kids were concerned, you know, they knew something was up. They knew there was a problem, but they didn't, they didn't know how bad it was. I didn't really start thinking about what am I going to do now? You know, for about a month, I, I just, I just shut it off. You know, I just quit thinking, to be honest with you. Um, there was nothing I could do about it. There was nothing I could do to change what had happened. Um, so I just stopped thinking, quite honestly. Uh, you know, I rode my bike, <laughs> rode my Harley, spent some more time with my kids, um, and tried to keep my mind off of wrestling as best I could. And here we go, man. Bookends on Nitro, Sting and Ric Flair. It's uh, not maybe the way we envisioned it going out, but it is pretty poetic that it happened this way. Eventually, I, though, go ahead. No, I know I keep talking about the emotions that these guys, you know, had to be going through. But again, I, you know, I know Rick pretty well, or I knew Rick pretty well then, and and Steve too. I mean, I was pretty close to Steve. Um, just trying to imagine 
what was going through their minds as they were in the ring right now is fascinates me. And in fact, when I see Sting next, I'm, I'm going to ask him because I never had that conversation with him. I never asked him what this night was like for him and what was going through his mind or Rick. And I'd, I'd really like to know, especially after watching this and kind of living vicariously through something that happened, you know, 18 years ago. Let's talk a little bit about, um, when the boys found out at the pay-per-view greed, um, Johnny ACE is handling things for you here. And apparently it gets so bad that Bischoff or not Bischoff, but Bagwell and, and Luger walk out for a bit before returning. Talk to us a little bit about what Johnny ACE was doing for you while, you know, you're not officially in charge yet, but you're going to be, he's sort of, um, your eyes and ears. Is that fair to say? You know, I originally hired Johnny because I had heard from a number of people that worked with him over in uh, Japan. Uh, I think Johnny was with All Japan Pro Wrestling. Even though I work closely with New Japan, I still knew a lot of people, you know, in All Japan. And he had a really good uh, reputation for finishes. And that's what I originally hired him for. But as I got to know Johnny a little bit, he was really good with talent. He, he understood both sides of the business, um, meaning the office side and the talent side, and he could communicate really well. So <laughs> more and more, sorry, more and more, I, you know, I relied on him almost as a, an agent, uh, or my right hand man in terms of dealing with talent because he was better at it quite frankly than I was. What do you remember about your phone call? You weren't at that nitro the week before, but you're on the, the phone sort of talking to the crowd. What do you remember about your speech there? You know, not much. It, it, it again, was that period of time where there was so much going on that I know this is going to sound weird, but I put so much of that out of my mind Yeah, that it's, it's hard for me to reflect back and to tell you, honestly, I could make some shit up, but to tell you honestly, what I remember and how I was feeling, I, I really don't because again, it, a lot of this, I just, yeah, you know, it's just the way I am. I don't, I don't think about things no, I get that it. are negative. I don't, I just don't dwell on them. I don't think about them. And when I see them, you know, in situations like this, it's like, holy shit. I, oh, think, I know I was there. I know I did it, but I can't tell you what I was thinking. I think a lot of successful people do that. You know, they compartmentalize the negativity and just sort of purge it from their brains. So they can focus on what could be rather than what wasn't. Um, I'll take that. I'll t- we'll go with that. <laughs> talk to me a little bit about when you hear the price, because you guys have raised over $60 million and you know, it comes out on the 22nd that the WWE has, has, has purchased it. Uh, the wall street journal covers it on the 23rd and they're working into the wee hours of the night to get some sort of a short form agreement in place. People are speculating it's 10 or $15 million, but it winds up being a couple million bucks. When you heard that you had to think, well, shit, I'd have paid that. Right? No. Because as I said earlier, without the television component, there was no equity in anything. I mean, there were no hard assets. You don't think, you don't think the library could have, I mean, you could have made your money back on the library for sure. Now. Okay. Go back to 2000 and, and try to imagine how you would have made money with the library. No, there was no market for a library, a wrestling library at that time. You know, nobody had a crystal ball. Um, and could have envisioned 
you know, the OTT, you know, kind of opportunities that exist today and the, the digital platforms that exist today. You don't think, uh, um, putting, putting out some sort of DVD or box set or something like that would have made sense. No, n- no. In fact, I'm sure, I'm sure it wouldn't. And it wouldn't make sense today either because even back then the DVD market was dying, um, slowly. It just, it, it really, there was no real value, especially in wrestling content, you know? And again, this was, you know, 18 years ago now, um, nobody foresaw the value in it. And, and it really, if you take, take the library, put that off to the side and, you know, I guess someone could say, yeah, but Vince McMahon saw the value in it. Not really. I'm sure if somebody would have said, hey, Vince, we'll sell you this tape library for $12 million, he would have told him to go pound salt because he didn't know that <laughs> back then that he was at someday going to have something called the WWE Network and that all of these thousands of hours of this great content would really become one of the main cornerstones of that network and, and generate – you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars from him. He didn't know that either. Um, and we certainly didn't. But if you take the tape library aside and you just looked at that asset, WCW asset, what do you have? You, you don't have any production equipment to speak of because that's alternative broadcasting assets. Those aren't WCW assets, as we've talked about many times before. WCW didn't own a production truck. WCW didn't own uh, a, 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 an edit facility or a post-production facility or the equipment in it. Uh, WCW didn't really have, uh, when it came to office equipment, that was alternative broadcasting as well. We didn't even own our own computers. So a, as an asset, a hard asset, there was nothing there. The only thing there was the library, the ring, and whatever equity one could convince themselves existed in the WCW brand. And given the, the, the history of that brand at that time, that there was not a lot of brand equity in it. Somebody that was really smart might look at it and say, wouldn't it be better to start from scratch than to try to resurrect something that's been damaged as badly as it had been for the last year and a half? At this final nitro, Shane McMahon holds a meeting and tells the boys that there is going to be a WCW TV show, but it'll be like six to eight weeks. All the details aren't ironed out yet. And of course, on the other channel, Vince McMahon is holding a meeting at TV to tell the WWF crew about the purchase and that this will not affect their livelihood. Did you have anybody that you were talking to who was uh, at the show who sort of gave you a rundown of what happened at nitro that night? No. No, I, I, I wouldn't have taken a call from anybody who would have been willing to give me one. They want to hear about it. Literally. I put it completely out of my mind as best I could. A lot of the boys believe that the WWF asked for the belt to be put on Booker T. What would you think of that rumor? Yeah, it kind of makes sense. One of the it other, one of the other rumors is that Palumbo and O'Hare had their match cut from eight minutes to three minutes. And a lot of the guys think this was a bit of a test from guys like Bruce Pritchard in the WWF office to see how they would do. I don't know. I mean, that's, I, you know, I, I can't speculate on something like that. Um, you know, when it comes to tests and things like that, I, I know it's done. I know, you know, I think I would put in situations when I was in WWF that might have been, 
a test to a, to a certain degree to kind of see what I was really made of and how I'd react to certain situations. Uh, so I think it's plausible, but I, I can't imagine they would have tried to play that kind of game on a night like this. Wow. I, I, I honestly, I would, if somebody asked me to pick, you know, what was it a test or was it just, they rewrote the show and there wasn't the, the, the amount of time necessary. I'd go with that because they wrote the show on the fly. It's a live show. It's a complicated show. There's a lot of live cut-ins. First of all, it's a live show, and they're doing live cut-ins back and forth between Nitro and Raw. I would imagine if that match was cut, it was cut because of timing, not because of some, you know, sir, typish or, 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 or test or you know something nefarious. Can you believe this is the way the last Nitro ends? No. See, it still bugs me a little bit. Just. I guess it's the competitive part of me. Sure. You know, it's not emotional. It's just like, God damn it. Damn it. Damn it to hell anyway. <laughs> like, and I, I, you know, look, I've, I got a chance to work, you know, in WWE a couple of years after this, as a matter of fact. And I'm, and I'm very, very grateful for it because I have great memories of it and develop great friendships as a result of it, including with Bruce Pritchard and, you know, JBL and, you know, certain people that are in production who I'm not going to name because I still carry a little bit of heat with me wherever I go. But, you know, there's a lot of people that I've developed great relationships with as a result of being in WWE that I, I'm, I wouldn't trade. So it all worked out the way it was supposed to work out. The truth is um, if, if the AOL merger would have never happened – um, I don't think WCW would have existed long-term, even at Turner. There was never a commitment. <laughs> Excuse me. There was never really a commitment to WCW um, by the Turner organization from anybody with anybody other than Ted. And it would have probably gone by the wayside at some point under any circumstances. So sometimes things just things just work out the way they really are supposed to. And I think this is the case. It is kind of weird that, um, Vince McMahon has the final say here and it's all happening six days before WrestleMania. And he's saying that he hasn't signed the contract yet to purchase WCW, but he's going to sign it this Sunday, live on pay-per-view at WrestleMania. And He's saying he wants Ted Turner himself to walk down the aisle at WrestleMania and deliver the contract to him. I mean, really? I mean, after all that fun time he got to spend with Trish back in the dressing room, do you think it's necessary for him to jerk himself off like this? This is just ridiculous. Wow. Um, Vince apparently asked Brad Siegel. <laughs> nothing to say, nothing to say, Conrad. Well, I want to ask you about this because I, I was sort of surprised by this detail. Vince asked Brad Siegel to simulcast. And he was sort of surprised that Brad agreed so easily and allegedly triple H gets credit for the idea. And Vince decided to push the envelope and is going to run a WrestleMania commercial at the very end of nitro, even though that wasn't agreed upon. I mean, good for Vince. That's like spiking the fucking football. Is it not? It definitely is. And I'm sure that's exactly what happened. Knowing the principles involved. I'd bet on that. The word on Shane from the guys on the WCW side was that he was down to earth and friendly. He was just a good guy, no intimidation or games, but they did notice that he had security with him just in case. And security, of course, if you're a McMahon means that Jerry Briscoe's with you. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, that's all the security. First of all, Shane didn't need any security. Trust me. Um, and Shane is a good guy. He's not. He, <laughs> be careful how I say this. I don't want to offend anybody accidentally, but he's not. He's his own man. Let's put it that way. And he is. I mean, he's a serious guy. He's a pro. You know, I think he'd fight for, you know, the family at the drop of a hat. But he doesn't try to intimidate or bully people. It's just not who he is. He's a very, very likable guy. So I I believe that. I like Shane a lot. Actually, he's fun to hang with. Uh, Shane Douglas no-showed this last Nitro. Buff and Lex are there, but leave before it starts. Tori Wilson, Bob Ryder, Jeff Jarrett, B. Brian Blair, Road Dog, and Dory Funk Jr. are all there backstage. Yeah. That's it. Just running down who all's there. It's kind of weird that you're not. Some of the other guys no show and it's just a weird deal. There's there's rumors. That the- you know what though? I gotta tell you, Connor, I'm glad I wasn't. Had I been there, I mean, I don't know. It's it's so easy for me, you know, 18 years later. Well, if I would have been there, this would have happened, or that would have happened, or I would have reacted this way or that way. And who knows? You know, it's you, there's no way you'd ever know. It's hypothetical. But I'm almost certain knowing myself that had I been there, I probably would have not ended up going to work for the WWE a couple of years later. You would have made it difficult for you to come in. No, and I just think my reaction, you know, and I wouldn't have done anything crazy. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm just saying knowing myself, you know, and I, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I'm not really good at hiding shit. Um, true statement. I, I would have, I would have been, it would have been easy to read me and it would not have been a positive thing. I would have, I, I would have been professional, but I don't think anybody would have said, Hey, I kind of dig that Bishop guy. He's not as bad as I thought. You know, I don't think that would have been, you know, something that would anybody, anybody would have thought had I been there. Um, so I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Like I said, sometimes things just work out the way they're supposed to. Yeah, it does work out. Um, allegedly, one of the rumors that's out there is that uh, you had told wrestlers, at least your friends who are wrestlers, to talk to you before they signed WWF deals. Would you have said something like that to a... No. Okay. No. No. It's nonsense. I had nothing else for them. What was... What, <laughs> no, I would have gone the other way. Dude, if you can get a deal, take the deal. Grab the money. Because there was nowhere else to go. In my mind, at that point, I was so done with professional wrestling. If if somebody would have said to me on this night, and I was in Atlanta, I wasn't home, but if someone would have called me and said, "Hey, Eric, you don't know this, but I got this crystal ball, and I'm telling you, in two years, you're going to be working with Vince McMahon," I, was, <laughs> I said, "Put the needle down, leave that crack alone." Enough. It will never happen. Um, I would have never suggested to anybody to not take a deal and call me before they did. I don't know where something like that would get started. It's, it's, it's so check this out. He's asking the fans almost like, you know, he's in the old gladiator days. What about Hulk Hogan? Thumbs up, thumbs down. God, he's having so much fun right now. I guess, you know, this is why it pisses me off. Cause I'm jealous. 
I'm so jealous right now. If the if the if it could have just been reversed, if that could have been me standing out live, you know, on a Monday Night Raw. What about Triple H? Should we keep him? Should we burn him at the stake? <laughs> that would have been fun. I don't blame him. He's having a good time. He earned it. He well, paid for it. What's what's famous about this whole, you know, evening here is the way he did the whole J E double F, you know, doing the whole Jeff Jarrett thing, but he spells the word gone and that you're fired. Yeah, there was not a lot of love lost between Jeff and Vince at that point. It's sort of funny though, because when I talked to Bruce about that, he said he was watching the monitor with Jeff Jarrett in Panama city. And he says, Jeff laughed. I mean, but he had to know that was going to be, he knew that was coming, but. Oh, oh, he knew. Yeah. You don't hold the guy up for six figures and expect he's going to pat you on the back and welcome you back to the team, especially not that guy. It is amazing that he, you know, it feels like Jeff Jarrett has fucking nine lives, man. Every time you think, oh, well he's done now. He ain't coming back from that. Some bitch does man. Every time. Like a cockroach. <laughs> there you go. It must be a shirt. It was reported that, um, WCW laid off all the office staff, but then the WWE holds a meeting to invite them all to apply. And they give them all contact sheets saying the WWF is going to be hiring folks in the next 30 to 60 days. And when the layoff meeting happens at the power plant, Loretta Walker from Turner's human resources handles it, not Brad Siegel. And supposedly as they're going through and calling names to pair everyone off with an HR rep, when she gets to Vince Russo's name, everyone laughs and then they boo. And at the end of this meeting, everyone was sent to the office where they found boxes to pack their things. And then security escorted everyone out. And that doesn't strike some of the folks the right way. So the torch would report that a lot of the former employees were contacting lawyers to try to see if they could get some sort of class action lawsuit about mental anguish that was placed on them during the sale process. Did you ever hear any silly stories like that? No, I, I mean, uh, I mean, who knows that it may have happened. I'm sure in their emotional state, some people who didn't know, who didn't really understand what a class action suit was or what a suit like that would involve may have, may have been a conversation amongst a couple of people, but I never heard anything about it. It's sort of fun to think about, you know, if that big bang paper, you would have happened. I think I mistakenly said it was May 9th earlier. It would have been May 6th. Of course it doesn't happen. The big bang. Everyone was really looking for happened on May 28th when Lance storm would jump into the ring and super kick Perry Saturn and the invasion had begun. And this feels like step one right here of the invasion because Shane McMahon is coming out, but not on raw. He's live in Panama city. And he's about to announce that the name on the contract for purchasing WCW is indeed McMahon, but it's not Vince. It's Shane. And of course, eventually we would find out that quote unquote, Stephanie had bought ECW because ECW's parent company, HHG is going to file bankruptcy on April 5th. And that's the same day that the WWF is holding a three hour meeting to deal with uh, WCW and they sort of decide to change plans a little bit. Maybe we're not going to have two sets of creative, but maybe we will. 
Uh, they teased the idea of running a WCW television taping on May 9th in Trenton. And that doesn't happen. Bruce would tell you that one of the ideas kicked around was to make it a Monday night WCW show and a Thursday night WWF show. I don't know how much of, I mean, I, I love me some Bruce, but I don't know how much of that. I can believe that Vince would actually give up Monday night. What say you, Eric? I have a hard time believing that too. Um, I, and I, it's easy for me to, when I say believe, I don't think Bruce is lying, but sure. I think there may have been a conversation, you know, just because a couple of guys are in a room and they're throwing ideas around is, is there's a lot of daylight between throwing a couple ideas around suggestions and actually pulling the trigger on something. I'm no doubt. They probably talked about it, but Monday night raw was the brand, the flagship brand. Uh, I just can't imagine that that ever would have happened. But I could, I mean, there was so much potential here, you know, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't a really big fan of the way they set this up. It really wasn't believable that Shane would have pulled a move like this just from out of nowhere. There was no backstory. There was no setup for it. There was no reason to believe that, you know, Shane resented his father, you know, enough to pull a stunt like this, but had there been, and had there been, a plan in place, which clearly there wasn't based on everything you just told me. Um, this could have been something really cool. This could have been what I had hoped to do with Nitro and Thunder, you know, splitting them so that the NWO had Monday night and, and WCW had Thursday night. And, and in this case, it could have been even bigger and in some respects easier to accomplish that in a very believable way. So all the ingredients were here. It's just that clearly they didn't, they didn't have a long-term plan. They hadn't really thought it through. And this, the, the creative that they did execute was, eh, it was okay. You know, it, just wasn't, it wasn't believable. Were you considering trying to pitch some sort of cross-promotional pay-per-view with the WWF? What would that have sounded like? No, I don't know where that came from. I mean, I really don't. And again, I may have had a conversation, you know, with somebody about God, wouldn't it be great if in, in a, in a non-serious kind of a way, but clearly my relationship, you know, at this point in, in time that we're looking at here with the federal trademark litigation and all the other stuff that was going on, uh, there would have been no serious thought in my mind of doing anything with Vince McMahon or WWF. Well, there is serious thought in your mind about doing some question and answer. And, um, you see right here as Nitro is going off the air, we're running a promo for what's still to come on raw as war. And then we're going to, of course, finish with a WrestleMania commercial, which is pretty crazy. And that's the end of nitro, man. You know, you know, my nickname for you moving forward is what? Oh, gray Bush. What? Yeah, I'll explain it next week, right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Hey, you finally watched the last Nitro. What'd you think? Did it hurt as bad as you thought? Uh, nah. Next one won't either on Twitter at 83 Weeks. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.